I'd like to read a well-known passage or verse from Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Father, we come here to feast on your word, that your spirit will enlighten our minds through the word of God. We know that the word has been given to direct our paths, to give us an understanding of who you are and what our purpose is, is here on this planet. Father, I thank you for each one in this room and for what you're doing in each life and in the lives of those for which each one here is concerned, family and loved ones. And Father, I pray that today we will hear the voice of God in our hearts. And Father, we will be further transformed into the image of your dear Son. We ask, Father, that wherever your name is proclaimed this day, that as the word promises it will not return void, it will bring the fruit that you have intended. Here in this property this morning, in all the classes and services throughout the city of Reading and, and this country and the world, we're thankful that we can join with the millions of others who know you in lifting our voice to you today, that the will of God will be done on earth even as it is done in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Judges, I would like to read beginning at verse 10. Well, let, let me back up in case some of you weren't here last week. Let me start with verse 6 and then read on through. And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear their mis the misery of Israel no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Last week, we talked just briefly about two shofatim, 
two judges or deliverers at the beginning of the chapter, about which we know very, very little, just per, pretty much what is written there in, uh, in the book of Judges. This is Tola and Jer. And uh, they, for, they became Judges 6 and 7 in the list of 12 Judges, as you go through the book, uh, this book of Judges. And once they were gone, we find Israel again, as we read in this passage in verse 6, did evil in the sight of the Lord. We become almost inured to it, don't we? It becomes so common, so frequent, as we read through the Old Testament and specifically the book of Judges, as the pendulum swings from obedience to disobedience to obedience and disobedience back and forth through the pages of these hundreds of years of history. What's interesting is, as I highlighted last time, that they didn't just decide to chase after Baal or the Ashtoreth, which they had been doing, but they decided now to go after every god they could find. So there's a big long list there. You know, the, the gods of, the, of Moab, of Sidon, of Aram, of uh, the Philistines, and so on and so forth. And as, as I mentioned to you last week, uh, most of these gods were various permutations of Baal or Ashtoreth, uh, virtually every one of these people worshipped fertility deities, and uh, many of their ceremonies were pretty much the same. The difference uh, mostly was in the name of the deity. The uh, area of authority was pretty much the same, however. So what does God do? He allows Israel to be again afflicted. As we read in the passage, crushed, literally hammered by these people. And for 18 years now... They've been subjected to specifically the Ammonites and the Philistines. And in the story of Jephthah, we deal with the problem with the Ammonites. And then when we move on to uh, the story of, of uh, Samson, we move to the oppression that occurred at the hands of the Philistines. Often the question is asked, and I've heard it asked, I'm sure you have too, the question is, if God controls the affairs of mankind, why is there so much misery and violence? Why is there so much evil in this world? If, as the scripture proclaims, God is love, and if he has the power to stop evil, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? And this is a question, of course, with no simple answer. Of course, we can always look at the flip side of it, can't we? We might ask, how come there's so much peace and order in the world? Yeah. Could be a lot worse. Yeah, really could. And, and I think one day, hopefully we won't see it, but one day the world will see it when, when God withdraws the power of his Holy Spirit. And well, what will this world turn into? You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that man was at his very best in the most primitive lifestyle. Uh, Thomas Hobbes had argued the opposite that man is, is vile and violent, and man needs uh, harsh laws to keep him under control. The ancient Chinese argued back and forth about that too. Confucius said, man is, is basically good, and you create a good environment, why, he'll be a good guy. But there was this, uh, a philosophy in China known as legalism, which believed just exactly the opposite, same as Thomas Hobbes. And as man is evil, and the only way you can control him is to have strong government and strong laws. And we face that in this country today. You know, should we have stronger laws? I mean, should we make marijuana illegal? Should we give away needles? Should we give people drugs so they don't go out and rob people in order to get the money to buy drugs? You know, it's just a, 
It's a dilemma. It's a conundrum that we as humans cannot answer. We can't come to the right conclusion because God holds the key. God has the answer. And of course, if everybody was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, walking in obedience to him, there wouldn't be these problems. We probably wouldn't even need very many laws. Even though if you go back to the communities that were supposedly religious communities, they even had laws. <laughs> Calvin's Geneva had laws. And uh, some of those laws we look on as being pretty harsh laws uh, in reality. So I, I think as we look at this question, uh, of, to which there are many aspects to the answer, such as it is God's sovereign choice to allow human beings ex to exercise free will. We are allowed to choose our own destiny. We're allowed to choose which way we will go, and at the same time, we're allowed to receive the consequences thereof. Now, God is not a fireman. He doesn't just jump in and put out every little fire we start. We get burned, and God allows that for purposes of demonstrating that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. I think, however, that one of the primary reasons God allows what we perceive as injustice and tragedy is to awaken people to their spiritual condition. I don't know about you, and I can't speak for everybody, but spiritual thoughts are not always in the forefront, at least of my mind, all the time. Uh, we get busy with all the things we need to do. Bodily things come along and, and uh, you know, all kinds of things press into our lives. And sometimes spiritual things take a back seat. In good times, in good times, men and women tend to neglect their spiritual needs and to focus on materialism. They become destructively hedonistic. And as a result, generally lose, we, we as human beings, we get into that condition, we lose all concern for truth with a capital T. We begin to lose true compassion. And genuine justice is not that important to us. If we live in a materialistic world and we're dominated by, by the lust for wealth and greed and power and all of these kinds of things, Injustice parades in the guise of justice. As I was thinking about this, um, I, I came across a passage in Job that seems to highlight this. Job chapter 31 has an interesting statement made by Job himself in his conversation with uh, God. Job says this in, in uh, chapter 31, beginning in verse 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in its splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, and I would have denied God above. The whole theme of that passage, of course, is giving oneself over to the greed of this life, the desires of this life, and he, he brings it to the, to the end result, which is to deny God above. And that's exactly what Israel had done. They had turned away from God. They had denied God and gone after 
the many other gods of the surrounding peoples. And the gods of the surrounding peoples, it must be remembered, always play to human desires. What makes pagan religion so attractive? Because it plays to our very base instincts. Christianity is the opposite. Christianity appeals to whatever higher <laughs> thoughts we might have. Christianity is in the job not of appealing or satisfying our fleshly desires, but transforming us and freeing us from our natural desires in order to serve Him. And that's what's so radical uh, about the faith. When, when tragedy strikes and uh, people finally realize there's nowhere to turn except to God, many will do that. Many will wake up. Not all, of course. We've seen people who've gone through the greatest of tragedies and the gospel has been presented and, and they have turned their backs on it and walked away. But many will wake up and repent. And as a result, they will find true joy, peace, and of course, eternal life. Unfortunately, and I, I can't speak for all of you, but uh, I can speak for my own life that it often requires experience of physical, uh, financial, emotional, or some kind of social hardship or even tragedy uh, before we're willing to really submit to the Lord. We're always hanging on to that, that, that uh, last little bit of ourself. You know, I want to be myself. Sometimes it, of course, is, is displayed in ways that are obvious to others, and sometimes it is not. I mean, we look at one another, and from what contact we may have with one another, passing from Sunday to Sunday, everybody looks very spiritual. You know, the halo is nice and polished and everything else. But, of course, God alone knows that our halos are not only not very well polished, they're often on the ground, <laughs> and, and not even we aren't even deserving of a halo. I think... The upshot of it all is, is to highlight the fact that our spiritual condition is so much more important than any other condition of our being that God will take us to the wall if he has to, to break our wills and to bring us into submission to himself. Uh, we've, we've talked and highlighted about uh, this before, but constantly trying to remind ourselves that our spiritual condition is so much more important than anything else, that the rest of it pales into insignificance. And if we have great bodily pain, if we have great financial pain, if we have great emotional pain, or if we're persecuted, or, or, or the object of, of racism, or anything else, it pales into insignificance in comparison. You know, God wants to give us a good life, and the image in the Old Testament for the Israelite is to sit under your own vine, you know, and, and enjoying your property and the fruit of your hand, and in an, in an era where the enemy is not there, and the wild animals are not around, and the plague is not ruining your crops, and, and so forth. But unfortunately, that is not a frequent condition, either for Israel or for any of us in reality. I think if we're really pursuing the Lord, really pursuing the Lord, it's a painful thing. It's like going through withdrawals from some kind of drug because your body, your, your, your self, your soul, my soul is it's all crying out, no, 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 I need this, I need that. You're denying me this and that and the other thing. And then, of course, the enemy comes in and says, yeah, that's right, that's right. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. And it's not easy. And so it was for Israel over 3,000 years ago. The Ammonites were crushing the Israelites. 
in Gilead. And they were even crossing the Jordan attacking Canaan besides. A land that the Ammonites never could lay any claim to. They had never lived on the other side of the Jordan, and yet they were crossing the Jordan. And the scripture tells us they were giving a bad time to Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Now, Ephraim had had problems with previous uh, oppressors, but Judah and Benjamin hadn't, specifically not Judah. And now suddenly they're having problems also, even though they will not play any recognized role in the defeat of the Ammonites, which will come under the hand of God through Jephthah. But in the face of impending doom, the Israelites finally awoke. You know, the light bulb went on and, and they recognized that the root of their distress was the fact that they had turned their backs upon the God of Israel. A God who had demonstrated the reality of his existence and of, of his love for his people time and time again over hundreds and hundreds of years, ever since the days of Abraham and even before. They had these powerful promises, and yet they set them all aside to chase after Baal and Ashtart and Moloch and Chemosh and all these other hideous gods. Now, you and I look back at those deities and we say, how could they worship these things? But God looks at us and says, how can you worship what you worship? It's just as hideous. I think there was a public gathering, as we read through this passage in, in Judges here, where the people openly acknowledged their apostasy and they began the process of repentance. Repentance can't come until sin is exposed. It's got to be acknowledged for repentance to occur. And verse 11 tells us that God spoke to the sons of Israel. Well, how did God speak to the sons of Israel? Moses is dead. Joshua is dead. All of the judges are dead. There is no judge at this given moment. How did he speak? Scripture doesn't tell us. We can assume that he spoke through a prophet who is unnamed. Or maybe he somehow spoke through the priest. Maybe through the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know. But somehow God spoke to Israel and they understood what he was saying. And he reminded them, he said, I have delivered you time and time again. I delivered you from the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the Amalekites, and I delivered you from the Amorites, and the list is as long as your arm. I've delivered you from all of these people. And yet every time you have become apostate. Every time there's peace, you become apostate. Ever wonder why some people accuse historians of focusing on war? Why do you just talk about war so much? Well, the primary reason is there's been so much war. It's just like in, on, on uh, what is today, Sunday, Friday, a part of my class in World Civ on Friday was, was talking just briefly, because we didn't have time to go into any detail, about the Thirty Years' War. Now, most of you probably have forgotten all your information about the Thirty Years' War that you knew so well at one time. But <laughs> from 1618 to 1648... <laughs> There was a war in Germany, in what was called the Holy Roman Empire. There was a war that was basically between the Catholics and the Protestants. And it was a horrendous war. It went through four phases and brought in other countries, the, the Swedes and the Danes and the French and others got all involved in this. The upshot of the whole matter was when the war was over, things were pretty much the same condition as they were before, except one half the population of Germany was in the grave. 10 million people. 
died as a direct or an indirect result of that war. And, and each went to battle on, in the name of the Lord. I slay you in the name of Jesus, each side said to the other. I mean, it's terrible tragedy. How many people during that crisis actually turned to God? <laughs> this is awful, Lord. Our lands are being burned. Our women are being raped. The whole countryside is being pillaged by each army. Where do we go but to you? And we say, why does God allow such a tragedy? Because only through it do fruit, does fruit come. Gems are only made through heat and pressure. God knows that if he just gives us all peace, peace, and everything is wonderful, that, you know, almost in mass, people will turn their backs on God and just live for themselves, ignore God. So Israel was being crushed, and they were being forced to admit their apostasy. And God applied tough love to them. He told them, I've had it up to here, and I'm done delivering you. I'm going to deliver you no more. Now, we have to understand, of course, this is an application of tough love. It was not God's final word on the matter, because you know, as we read later uh, in the chapter in verse 16, it says, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. It's a God of compassion above everything else. Does not mean he changed his mind. God is immutable. He's unchangeable. It means when God does something, he wanted to do it in the first place, but he withheld it until God's people beseeched him and obeyed him. He told them, you want help? Go seek it from the gods you've been worshiping. Go to Baal, go to Ashtar, go to Chemosh, go to Molech. See what they'll do for you. I think the Israelites had. You know, think about it practically. They probably had already. And, of course, they hadn't found much help. Let me, let me read from Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, the first uh, five verses. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs, and literally you can translate that word gods, for the gods of the people are delusion, because it, that is the god, the statue, is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, so that it will not totter. Can't let your god fall over, you know. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, are they? I like that. Your God's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. <laughs> well, I think they had found out this truth to be real, even though Jeremiah would not preach this message here for another 600 years or so, or 500 years, whatever, half a millennium, they, they were learning this truth. They knew that Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, was their only hope. And when he seemed to reject their petition, and he said, I've had it with you guys, I'm not going to deliver you anymore, they found themselves at the end of their rope in every sense of the word. Wisely which is a very unusual phenomenon for these people. 
wisely. They cast themselves upon the Lord in total repentance. And they said, we're willing to accept any consequence. Do unto us whatever seems good to you, O Lord. Only deliver us this day from these who are oppressing us. Please reconsider, O Lord, and deliver us. Then, to demonstrate the sincerity of their repentance, with God's word still in their ears, I will not deliver you, they ended the worship of all the pagan deities. They cut them off completely and they threw themselves wholeheartedly into the worship of the Lord with no promise, at least moment, at the moment, no promise. On the promises of the past, yes, but not on the promise of the moment that he was going to deliver them. They were going to do anything and everything they could to get God to say, okay, I'll do it once more. Why would they even think that was possible? Because he'd done it over and over and over again. And that's the point of the whole, one of the major points of the whole scripture, to demonstrate that God will redeem us if we cast ourselves upon him no matter how far we've gone, how deep the hole is we have dug. When you go to the book of Romans, which I alluded to last time, where he says, I've turned them over to their reprobate ways. What, what that is, sta is stating for us is the fact that God in his omniscience knows that those people will never repent from their sin. Those whom God knows will repent, he never turns them over to the reprobate way to be destroyed. He turns them over to oppressors, but he ultimately delivers. And this, of course, is a very powerful example to us of true saving faith. Here we don't just have Israel giving a verbal profession, O Lord, we believe in you. We do not have a sham repentance. We're turning from our ways, but not really. Not just a veneer of righteousness. They threw it all away. They exposed themselves and said, we're totally rotten, O Lord. We cast ourselves upon your mercy. This was a desperate leap into the arms of God by faith in total repentance and commitment now to obedience. They can only, of course, commit themselves to the obedience of the hour. I mean, none of us can commit ourselves to obedience a year from now. Oh, we can say we, that's our goal, but we can't commit ourselves in such a way that we know that a year from now we'll be totally obedient. That's, that's the importance of the momentary walk with God, of, as Brother Lawrence says, practicing the presence of God. That is the only way to guarantee our commitment to be sustained. Let me read uh, some words Paul wrote to uh, Timothy in Second uh, Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 19, he said these words, Nevertheless, a firm foundation, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. This is the firm foundation. The firm foundation upon which Israel was casting itself. They knew the Lord knew their hearts. And they knew that the Lord demanded that they turn their backs on wickedness and walk in righteousness. And, and then Paul makes it very clear to us in the New Testament context. I think that when we find ourselves in a place or an attitude or a thought of wickedness, we know that it is. We know that. 
because the Spirit of God makes it quite clear to us. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we are in tune with Him and the more quickly we recognize wickedness for what it is. True repentance, true repentance, which Israel is displaying at this moment, includes both a change of attitude and action. Attitude and action. A change of the desire of the heart and a change of lifestyle. Now, of course, in the flesh, you and I, or Israel, cannot accomplish any of that. You cannot change, permanently change the attitude of your mind, and neither can I. We, we can change it at the moment and ask God for the strength to make it real. We can change our lifestyle for the moment, but we can't guarantee our lifestyle will be changed a year from now, except as we rest in His strength to make that a reality. If they had not been willing to completely separate themselves from the pagan worship and the pagan actions that had been part of their lives now for, for all these 18 years, it would have proven to God that their petition to Him was insincere and was invalid. Not that God wouldn't know that anyway. But God wants us to demonstrate our faith. Not that He doesn't know we have that faith, but so that we know we have that faith and that the world knows that we have that faith. That's why He requires demonstration. Now, the incredible mercy and patience of God is displayed here. You know, where he, where he says, as I read a minute ago, He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I mean, God was bearing the weight of, of, of Israel's misery. They were His people. He had called them forth. He was going to bring Messiah through them. That, that was not negated. And so as they were in this desperate strait, he, he felt their misery. He understood the tragedy they were experiencing. And no matter how many times Israel had forsaken God before, when they came to Him genuinely contrite and submitted to Him without reservation, as they did here at this time, He delivered them without fail. That ought to be a very encouraging thing for us. And it's why it's here. Because no matter how pious we may pretend to be, we know we fail. We know we turn our back on God from time to time and we, we, we pander uh, to our flesh. And yet when He convicts us through His Word, He takes us back. Actually, He had never thrown us out in the first place. But He restores the fellowship, that, that line of communication between us and Him. Let me read that passage we read several times before. But it's such a beautiful one when Moses went up on the mountain after he had shattered the, the two tablets of stone because of his anger over the Israel chasing after the golden calves. And God said to him, well, come back up, Moses, only you cut out the tablets this time. You know, I, God could have said, fry you, Moses, I'm going to find someone else. He didn't because Moses' anger was partly righteous anger. You know, I, I, there was a little bit of pride, I think, mixed in there. You guys, how can you do this to me? You know, I've led you so well all these years. And yet, at the same time, how can you turn from the God who has led you and worship this, this false representation of Him? And so God said, come, on, my, uh, come back up the mountain, Moses. And so Moses cut out a couple more tablets and went back up the mountain. And in verse 5 of Exodus 34, he said, 
The Lord, it says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called on the name of the Lord. The Lord came down the cloud and the scripture says the Lord stood with Moses as he called on the name of the Lord. Now you and I may not see a cloud come down, but as we call in the name of the Lord, he stands with you. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, that doublet that's always there through Scripture, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting iniquity the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the four, third and fourth generations. The compassion and the mercy of God mixed right in with the justice of God, all demonstrated to Moses there as he prepared to receive the word of God again on the two tablets of stone. God is not a jellyfish. He's not a whimpering emotional being who just says, oh, you poor little people, I'm going to help you again. There is a justice that that's part of God's mercy and his love too. And that, of course, will be displayed in, in, in the events as we read about them because God will deliver Israel, but God is not going to deliver Israel without a battle. Israel's going to have to fight a battle. And Israel's going to have to experience that whatsoever you sow, you shall reap, even, even after you've repented and turned. There are still consequences that you will face. The consequences don't go away just simply because we confess our sin and, and, and um, repent. Otherwise, we just go rambling through life, doing whatever we want, and just saying, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, and, and go on, and everything's hunky-dory. No. We wouldn't probably come and confess our sin very often if we didn't get hit upside the head. We wouldn't. It's a good point, and many of the churches in America don't anymore. They don't call it sin. Sin's been thrown out. Hell's been thrown out. I mean, it's a really easy Christianity today. No wonder it can go along and say, oh, Dalai Lama, come and cozy up to us and, you know, whatever. You know, we'll all cozy up together because we'll get to heaven all different paths, but we'll all get there. Ah, when you take the things that really are offensive out of, of Scripture, you, have, you, you just have nothing. You have milk toast. You don't have... The strong word of the Lord. And that, of course, is what turns our, our sophisticated, cosmopolitan American society away. So we want it to be nice and clean and politically correct. God is politically incorrect or incorrect, however way you want to put it. And that's, of course, why he's been, of course, relatively rejected from everywhere. Now, the last two verses of this chapter tell us that as always is the case, when God's people get down to the business of truly serving the Lord, the enemy doesn't just run away howling and saying, oh, I've been defeated again. He prepares a counterattack. Satan is persistent. If you can't give him credit for much, you can give him credit for persistency. The physical enemy, of course, is Ammon. But the real enemy is Satan himself and his hordes and his minions. They're behind this Ammonite attack. So what do the Ammonites do? They gather a great army together. They're summoned together to meet in a camp in Gilead. Probably over on the east side of Gilead, close to their own homeland. And, and the idea was the gathering of this force. This will show the Israelites. They will look at it and they'll say, 
you know, and, and they will submit to Ammon. But the Gileadites have been revived. And so they gather to a camp also to, to resist, and they gather at Mizpah, which means watchtower. Unfortunately, there were many watchtowers in Israel. So we don't know exactly which watchtower they gathered to, except most who study this believe that probably it, the location was a few, about 14 miles up the Jabbok River on the east side of the Jordan uh, in Gilead. As the Israelites gathered to defend their land, I think they were painfully aware, and the passage seems to imply this, they are painfully aware that God had not raised another Shofat. There was no deliverer. I mean, they're gathering, but who will lead them? Who is God's man of the hour? We've gathered, but who is it? But you know what is important about this? The fact that they gathered demonstrated a faith that God would reveal a deliverer. God would raise up a leader. They didn't just sit in their tents and say, well, we're not going anywhere until God raised up a leader. No, they gather in faith. They get together. They prepare to resist, believing that God will raise up the deliverer to lead them. And then they made it quite clear that whoever will arise to be their leader in this battle will also be their political leader in Gilead. Well, we'll, we'll leave uh, Jephthah to begin looking at Jephthah till next week. This is a very, very unusual man and a man of considerable faith since he is listed in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. We can't bypass him at all. And uh, a man who had a very inauspicious start, unfortunately for him, but God tends to use people with inauspicious beginnings. <laughs> the person you don't think would ever be the one that God would raise up is the one that God raises up. He doesn't pick the one. It's like when, when, when um, Samuel went to anoint uh, the, you know, the, the successor to uh, Saul. He didn't get the tall, handsome, earlier sons, but he worked down through the sons of Jesse until he came to little, well, young David, uh, who's out there pushing sheep around. You know. That's a real testimony to the nature of God.